Good evening, everybody. I know lots of you, but um, for those that I don't, I'm Christine Chinkin. I'm Professor of International Law at the Law Department here at the LSE and a member of the Advisory Board for the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, who's hosting the event tonight. And delighted to be chairing the event. What we're doing is marking International Women's Day uh, a few hours early, but, you know, what the hell, we can enjoy it um, today and tomorrow as well. Uh, so International Women's Day, as you all know, is 8th March. That is tomorrow. And I'm especially delighted to be chairing the panel, and I'll introduce in just a moment the members of the panel. But the usual preliminaries first. Mobile phones, please. Um, all switched off. Uh, the event is being recorded, and there's people I keep wanting to say hello to, <laughs> suddenly seeing the audience. Um, the event's being recorded, and hopefully there should be a podcast of the lecture and the question and answer session early next week, um, so available. And if you want to comment on the event using Twitter, it should be, yeah, there it is, at LSE Women um, is the recommended Twitter site. Okay, now, as I said a moment ago, we are celebrating, marking International Women's Day, but unfortunately when one looks at marking events around women, the sobering reality of gender-based violence is something that is always with us. Um, gender-based violence is violence that is targeted at women because they are women. Um, statistics are always to be treated with care. You always need the context of the particular statistics. But nevertheless, just a few sobering ones taken from studies that have been carried out in the UK over the last decade. Domestic violence accounts for between 16% and one quarter of all recorded violence in this country. How much it accounts for unrecorded violence is, of course, something that we don't know. One incident is reported to the police every minute. 45% of women and 26% of men experience at least one incident of interpersonal violence in their lifetime. Where there are more than four incidents involving the same people, i.e. repeated domestic violence or sexual abuse, 89% of the victims are women. On average, two women a week are killed by a male partner or former partner. This constitutes one-third of all female homicide victims. Um, to add to the statistics, just a few, you know, you look at the press any day, and so just a few that are taken out from the past few days. Earlier this week, it was reported that Amazon had removed from its sales T-shirts. I don't know how many of you saw this. T-shirts that had messages on them. Keep calm and rape a lot. Keep calm and hit her. Um, the producers of these T-shirts um, said, oh, this was a mistake. They got generated by computer error in some way or another. Um, the whole impact of sexual abuse and the whole issues of the failure of the justice system. Again, those of you who have been in the UK will know the case of a couple of weeks ago of the woman who committed suicide after giving evidence in a trial against her former music master for sexual assault. Um, again, the notion that the trial itself was a repeat of the um, suffering that she had endured. In that particular case, the um, accused person was in, found, in fact found convicted, uh, found guilty and convicted. In many other cases, that is not the case. 
and the issue of impunity and the fact that people think that you can commit violence against women with such impunity continues. Also the issue of the whole uh, access to the justice system. Uh, Vera Baird, who was former Solicitor General and is now a police commissioner in the north of England, um, argued that we should re-look at court procedures relating to trials of sexual abuse. I don't know, at the end of, sort of, end of my career, I just feel we've been through this cycle so mm. many times and we still haven't got it right, mm. how these trials should be carried out. Um, it's not just impunity. Sometimes these offences are simply not recognised as crimes. Another report taken from the press in the last couple of weeks, this time from the independent police commissioner, reporting on the Sapphire Unit, one of our elite units relating to um, sexual abuse. It was stated that the unit, uh, with respect to actions in the London borough of Southwark, the police had tried to persuade women who had reported that they'd been sexually attacked to drop their cases in order to enhance their performance figures. Trials relating to sexual assault are messy. They are hard to get convictions. Prosecutors and police don't like them. So isn't it better just to, you know... Um, pretend they're not there. Um, of course, we get incidents repeated globally of this sort. Um, most of you are probably aware that this week in New York, the 57th session of the Commission on the Status of Women, the UN body, is meeting in its annual um, session. The priority theme is elimination and prevention of all forms of violence against women and girls. Again, think back to the press relating to Delhi in the last few months, South Africa, um, last couple of weeks, yeah, you can just go on with the incidents of global, I call it an epidemic, of violence against women. So all of this makes tonight's panel um, both extremely important and topical and extremely relevant to people from whichever country that they come from. The convention the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence was adopted in May 2011. Um, its aim is to end impunity for violence against women. It's a landmark treaty. Um, it opens the path for creating a, legal, a common legal framework across Europe to protect women against all forms of violence, to prevent, prosecute and eliminate violence against women and domestic violence. It recognises that violence against women is, to quote the Convention, structural, a crucial social mechanism by which women are forced into a subordinate position compared with men. It aspires to create a Europe free from violence and domestic violence. Is there a better way to celebrate International Women's Day than an aspiration like that? Okay, so we have three speakers. I'll now get round to introducing them at last. On my right is Elder Marino who is Head of the Gender Equality and Human Dignity Department within the Directorate General of Human Rights and the Rule of Law at the Council of Europe, so the body that is responsible for this, or under which, whose auspices the convention uh, was negotiated. She's responsible for the area of children's rights, trafficking in human beings, gender equality and violence against women, has worked for some time in the Council of Europe and was previously working as a Special Advisor to the Secretary General on similar range of issues. And Elder will discuss, essentially, the European context of the Convention. On my far left is Louise de Souza. Um, Louise is head of the Human Rights and Democracy Department at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office here in the UK. She's responsible for the UK's human rights policy 
in multilateral institutions, pursuit of the UK's thematic human rights priorities and the FCO's democracy support work and also the production of the FCO's annual report on human rights. She's also got a bad cold, so we are very grateful to you, Louise, for coming out tonight. Uh, anyway, Louise is essentially going to be looking at the place of the convention in its international context and in the place of international um, relations from the FCO perspective. And then on my immediate left is Pragna Patel, who's a founding member of Southern Black Sisters and Women Against Fundamentalism. She was a coordinator and senior caseworker for Southern Black Sisters for some 10 years before you left to go and become a solicitor and then returned to Southern Black Sisters as its director. So she's been centrally involved in some of its most important cases and campaigns around domestic violence, issues relating to the intersection between violence and immigration and gender fundamentalism. And Pragna is going to bring it down to the domestic (laughs) focus, examining how the convention might be used here in the UK. So... Each of the speakers will speak for somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes um, from those different perspectives that we've looked at, and then hope we'll have some questions and discussion. So, Elder, turn to you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, It it was just mentioned, uh, this very week, uh, governments from about 200 countries are discussing in New York the issue of violence against women. This uh, is indeed the priority theme uh, of this year's session of the UN Commission on the Status of Women. And the Council of Europe has sent a strong delegation to New York to make the case. Not the Council of Europe case, but the case, the, human, uh, the women's rights case. The Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combat- Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, that we call the Istanbul Convention, is indeed the most far-reaching international legally binding instrument in this area. This is a treaty made in Europe, but not meant for Europe only. It, is, it has indeed uh, the potential to become a global standard. I'm very grateful to the London School of Economics uh, for having organized this event around the Istanbul Convention. I feel privileged to be in this prestigious university surrounded by outstanding experts on women's rights and activists, Uh, and of course facing a very well-prepared, curious, and uh, sharp audience. (laughs) I'm a little bit intimidated. (laughs) (laughs) The question at the head of our program today is, does the Istanbul Convention bring an end to impunity for violence against women? Well, responding, of course, would amount to pretending that it has a magic powers or that it contains some miraculous formula? <coughs> I would rather dis- respond, it depends. The Istanbul Convention is an extremely comprehensive test- treaty and it covers many forms of violence against women. It was not easy for our member states to agree on its exact scope, and you know something <laughs> about that. Well-established concepts as agreed and agreed language in other international documents were even questioned by some. Questions raised during the negotiations included the following. Do we need a treaty to address violence targeted at women because they are women? Is there even such a thing? 
Is violence against women a human rights issue or a human rights violation? What is gender? And what about gender-based violence against men? <laughs> violence affects all generations and all sexes. Why don't we better address violence in the family? The answer that was found is both simple and complex. Simple, because data shows that there are many forms of violence that women experience either exclusively or that affect women to a much larger extent than men. <coughs> complex, because this is violence that is used to control and exert power. Power over women's bodies, women's sexuality, and women's choices. And that means that there is no easy fix. This type of violence is often perpetrated by men and still more often by men who play some sort of role in women's lives, members of the family, teachers, friends, and even co-workers. That makes it much harder to address. The forms of violence range from domestic violence, psychological, sexual, and physical violence, to sexual assault, sexual harassment, stalking, forced marriage, female genital mutilation, forced sterilization, and forced abortion. There's a clear gender dimension to all these forms of violence, and that is how the Istanbul Convention addresses them. The Istanbul Convention also acknowledges that men may be victims of some of these forms of violence, in particular domestic violence, and it encourages states' parties to apply its provisions also to men. So, coming back to the question, is this the end of impunity? When speaking about impunity, we immediately think of criminal codes and criminal justice and how comprehensive, dissuasive, or efficient they are. In most of the 47 mem uh, Council of Europe member states, the rates of prosecution and conviction for domestic violence, stalking, sexual assault, forced marriage, or any other form of violence against women are very low. There are many reasons for this, and they mainly have to do with criminal justice systems that rely entirely on victi victims' statements for evidence or to open a case. They also have to do with a general lack of understanding of the nature of these offenses among the judiciary and prosecution services, and how trauma makes victims less willing to, and less able to immediately report a crime or to testify. Notions of real rape, which means uh, you know, that uh, a woman cannot be raped by her husband, or that only good women get raped, are still widespread and influence how evidence is collected or a court case is handled. The Istanbul Convention addresses all of this and makes sure all professionals are trained on the different forms of violence against women. It requests that investigations and judicial proceedings be carried without delay and paying due attention to the victim's needs. It also allows proceedings to begin without an official complaint by the victim and to continue after it has been withdrawn. Still, victims' trust in the process is key to securing convictions. That is why the Istanbul Convention contains a number of practical measures to empower victims during judicial proceedings. These include 
allowing them to be accompanied by aspective support centers or advisors, avoiding contact with the perpetrator by using video links in court and offering separate waiting rooms, or by allowing questions on their sexual history only if they are absolutely relevant for the case and necessary. It also introduces a whole new set of criminal offenses such as psychological violence, stalking, sexual harassment, forced marriage, and female genital mutilation. Believe it or not, some of these uh, offenses are not in uh, many criminal codes in Europe. So this is all intended to make convictions easier. For some women, the consequences of reporting domestic violence may imply not only leaving their homes, but also the country they are living in. If migrant women, women's rights to stay or to work in a country depend on their status as spouses, the daily beating becomes the price to pay for the residence permit. This again allows their husbands to keep aggressing them in all impunity. The Istanbul Convention contains a whole chapter on migration and asylum. One of the provisions foresees the granting of an autonomous residence permit to the victim. The Istanbul Convention also makes it clear that culture, custom, religion, tradition, or the so-called honor cannot be used to justify the offenses included in the Convention. Jurisdiction issues are often another passport to impunity. For instance, some parents send their children abroad to undergo female genital mutilation or to get married by force. It is important that the court in the country where they reside can establish its jurisdiction for these kinds of criminal offenses, even when committed abroad and even if the act is not a criminal offense in the country where it was committed. The Istanbul Convention, again, foresees this as well. The statute of limitation for initiating legal proceedings can also lead to impunity, in particular when it comes to child victims. The Istanbul Convention therefore requests countries to make sure that its length is commensurate with the gravity of the offense and allows for the efficient initiation of proceedings after the victim has reached the age of majority. The Istanbul Convention also prohibits mandatory alternative dispute resolution processes such as mediation or reconciliation. I mentioned now that this is really very welcome in the context of uh, uh, austerity measures. So instead of going to a trial, you go, go to a mediation. Well, the Istanbul Convention prohibits that because this is a recognition of the vulnerability of the victim and her impossibility to participate in such a process on an equal basis. Last but not least, the Convention requires states parties to encourage individuals to stop turning a blind eye to violence and to what's happening to their friends, to their colleagues, to their neighbors, and to find the courage to report it and to, uh, to someone. The aim here is to help us all break the silence and ensure victims receive the help they need. Ladies and gentlemen, I have provided you with a few examples of how the Istanbul Convention fights impunity. But criminal law and proceedings are not enough to end impunity. 
and fighting impunity is not enough to bring justice to women. Women have the right not only to live safe from violence, they also have the right to live safe from fear and discrimination, the right to compensation for their suffering. To achieve these prevention and protection measures are in order. A main feature of the Istanbul Convention is that it recognizes violence against women as a human rights violation and a form of discrimination against women. By so doing, it establishes direct or indirect state responsibility for failing to prevent violence against women, for failing to protect its victims, and for failing to effectively prosecute the perpetrators. In addition to these three Ps, it asks states' parties to frame all measures in a coordinated approach of comprehensive policies <laughs> that involve all necessary agencies and institutions, governmental and non-governmental. The Istanbul Convention has embraced for its emphasis in prevention because it does not only mean running campaigns but also addressing the root causes of violence against women. This can only be done by challenging attitudes towards women and their role in society, by tackling gender stereotypes and prejudice, by teaching children from an early age about healthy gender relations and equality between women and men. An example? France has just announced that as of next year, sex education will contain modules on healthy sexual relationships and respecting women's sexual integrity. This clearly means getting men and boys involved as partners and as role models. The Istanbul Convention contains a lot of practical measures such as, such as this, but it also sets much wider aims such as stamping out persistent inequalities between women and men, which is the breeding ground for violence against women. If prevention has failed, victims need to receive support and protection. This might be a safe place to stay, a hotline to call, a psychological counseling. It might also be emergency medical help after the rape, a professional forensic examination that, so that evidence can be secured. These are the types of practical services that the Istanbul Convention calls for, and they have to be available to all victims, wherever and whoever they are. Protection also means that the physical safety of the victim is ensured. Protection orders can be helpful there in the form of emergency orders issued by the police on the spot or longer-term restraining orders from the courts. This has worked well in many countries and the Istanbul Convention makes this a must-have for all state parties. Um, three four more minutes. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the provisions of the convention are not magic incantations spelled from Strasbourg. They are the result of in-depth analysis of problems and solutions tested around the world. And the UK has been extremely active in combating the various forms of violence against women and has introduced a range of innovative approaches. Such approaches have not only been copied across Europe, but have also served as inspiration for several provisions in the Istanbul Convention. In conclusion, two years after the adoption of the Convention, out of the 47 member states of the Council of Europe, only Turkey, 
Portugal and Albania have ratified, and 25 additional states have signed it. A number of countries are actively working in the ratification, Austria, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Finland, France, Italy, Lithuania, Serbia, Slovakia, and Spain, and are expected to ratify by the end of 2013, with Sweden and Germany to follow shortly. Many, including the UK, are undertaking important changes in the legislation, bringing them more in line with the Convention. Let me in particular welcome the improvements made through the Domestic Violence Crime and Victims Act 2012 and the Protection of Freedoms Act 2012 here in the United Kingdom. It took the Council of Europe Convention on Action Against Trafficking in Human Beings four years to enter into force. We may beat that. Um, it is very likely that the next 8th of March we will be celebrating the entry into force of the Istanbul Convention. The entry into force will be followed by the setting up of a monitoring mechanism, including an independent group of experts entrusted with the task <coughs> to assess countries' compliance with the Convention and to make suggestions to address their shortcomings. So, can the Istanbul Convention bring to an end to impunity? To impunity? It depends. It depends on how governments, parliaments, experts, professionals, and civil society are going to use it. The Istanbul Convention has indeed the potential of putting a stop to impunity. Even better, the Istanbul Convention can actually prevent violence against women from occurring. And this is neither illusion nor delusion. All is there, the reasoning, the strategy, the tools, the connections, the directions, the warnings. But shall we find the determination, the strength, and the resources to make it work? For the great inventor Thomas Edison, the three things that are most essential to achievement are common sense, hard work, and stick to itiveness. <laughs> the Istanbul Convention is the outstanding result of many years of hard work. It now makes sense that we stick to it so that both women and society at large can benefit from its full potential. Thank you very much. Before Louise starts, I might just add, it was in fact for International Women's Day last year that the UK government announced that it was in fact going to sign the convention. So wouldn't it be great if we could actually celebrate another International <laughs> Women's Day with a ratification on it? Louise. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor Chinkin, fellow panellists, ladies and gentlemen. Um, like Elder, I'm honoured to be a part of this panel and thank you for inviting me to join the discussion. Um, I hope you're all going to be able to hear me and understand me and apologies if I start sneezing in the middle. Um, I've been asked to speak from the perspective of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office on our topic and we're considering the significance of the Istanbul Convention. Does it mark the end of impunity for violence against women? Like Elder, my answer is not a resounding yes, although I wish it could be. On the other hand, again like her, it's not a definite no. It is the case that discrimination and violence affect the lives of millions of women and girls worldwide. They impede the full participation of women and girls in society and prevent them from realising their full potential. One third of girls in the developing world marry below the age of 18. Medical complications 
from pregnancy and childbirth are the leading cause of death among 15 to 19-year-old girls worldwide. In 11 countries, the testimony of a woman in court carries less evidentiary weight than that of a man. And one in three girls and women will be beaten or raped in their lifetime. The UK believes that equality is fundamental to building strong economies and fairer, more stable societies. However, as is clear from the indicators, and as we're constantly reminded in the news, some of which Christine highlighted in her introduction, barriers to full equality remain and discrimination against vi- and violence against women continue. The UK's ambition is to end all forms of violence against women and girls, and for us, that also means seeking to end impunity for violence against women. Accountability is not the only way to prevent human rights abuses, but it is a fundamental part of it. It is essential that governments continue to take a strong lead internationally as well as domestically on this issue, and we believe that Europe as a region is doing that. There have been real gains in gender equality in combating violence against women over the past half century, both in absolute statistical terms, but also that stopping violence against women is so prominent in the national and international debate. I'd say it's now accepted in most of Europe that violence against women is unacceptable. If it does occur, it's not because it is believed to be the norm or socially acceptable, but it happens in violations, uh, violation of social norms and the law. As a region, Europe is ahead of the rest of the world, and the Istanbul Convention is the latest reflection of that. I want to be clear that the UK government recognises that discrimination and violence against women and girls are not problems unique to other places, overseas, far away. All countries and all societies suffer from them, and we all need to take action on them. From my perspective, it is certainly important that the UK acts on its own domestic problems if it is to speak and work effectively and credibly on the international stage. The Istanbul Convention accords with our strong commitment to combating violence against women and girls and promoting women's rights more broadly. It requires a comprehensive state approach, as we heard, to tackling violence against women. The UK did indeed sign the Convention on 8th of June last year and we are now working towards ratifying and implementing it. And the UK government's overall commitment to combating violence against women is detailed in its action plan, a call to end violence against women and girls, which is currently being updated for the second time. This encompasses both domestic and international priorities. So we recognise the progress that has been made, and Europe is in the vanguard of that progress. But the effort that the government is collectively putting into promoting gender equality and combating violence against women and girls recognises that there is much more to do. Women's empowerment and gender equality are a key focus of the Department for International Development. As the Secretary of State for International Development, Justine Greening, made clear in a speech on Monday at Amnesty International, in which she said, I intend to target DFID's efforts relentlessly on improving the lives of the poorest girls and women around the world. And among the many strong reasons she advanced for this focus was that this is a matter of universal basic human rights. It is about girls' and women's right to live a life free of the fear of violence. I won't quote further, but I do commend the whole speech to you, which you can find on DFID's website. Also this week, DFID's Parliamentary Undersecretary of State, Lynn Featherstone, has been leading the UK Government delegation to the 57th session of the Commission on the Status of Women. 
As we've heard, the theme this year is tackling violence against women and girls. CSW is the principal global policy-making body dedicated to evaluating progress on gender equality, identifying challenges, and agreeing global standards. Ms. Featherstone, who incidentally is also the ministerial champion for tackling violence against women and girls overseas, is supported at CSW by officials from the FCO, from DFID, the Home Office and the Government Equalities Office in a shared endeavour to secure a strong and progressive outcome from this crucial forum, which we don't take for granted because there was no outcome last year and there was no outcome the last time CSW's theme was tackling violence against women. Women's rights, with a focus on gender equality and women's empowerment, is also one of the FCO's six global thematic human rights priorities. As such, it's one of the focal areas for our Human Rights and Democracy Programme Fund, which provides small grants for niche projects in countries of human rights concern, usually working with local civil society organisations. This year, we're running 12 projects on discrimination against women, worth a total of £734,000, It's about 14% of our total allocation. Of these six of them are worth worth around £363,000 are focusing specifically on tackling violence against women and girls. These are small efforts, but hopefully significant in the places where they're happening. We also carry out a huge amount of diplomatic lobbying to promote and protect the rights of women, and we do this bilaterally to encourage other countries to fully implement their international commitments and we also work multilaterally. So we have, um, in the FCO, run a vigorous and targeted campaign in support of a strong outcome from CSW involving our whole global network. We also work hard to secure positive outcomes in negotiations in other UN fora. Most recently, we were instrumental in securing good resolutions at the UN General Assembly in December, covering a number of women's rights issues. And we played a leading role in the creation of UN Women, which came into operation in January 2011, and the UK is the second largest donor. We welcome UN Women's announcement of its intention to make violence against women a priority issue and strongly support the leadership it is showing in this year's CSW. We also work for the European Union. The UK was at the forefront of negotiations last year on the EU External Action Services Human Rights and Democracy Strategic Framework, which was adopted in June 2012. We're pleased that it includes a commitment by EU member states to support initiatives against harmful traditional practices, particularly FGM, and against gender-based violence. And the UK is now working with the External Action Service and with the newly created EU Special Representative on Human Rights, Stavros Lamaridis, and with our other... EU member state partners to take this agenda forward. And of course we work in the Council of Europe. Although the UK is still in the process of ratification, we remain keen to see the Istanbul Convention widely ratified and will look for opportunities to work more closely with the Council of Europe to promote its adoption. We're also keen to help develop resources for member states, such as guidelines and best practice manuals, to support meaningful implementation of the Convention. And we were very pleased that the Council of Europe ran a side event to promote the Istanbul Convention at CSW this week, an important opportunity to raise awareness of the standards and commitments it embodies. In May last year, the Foreign Secretary launched an initiative on preventing sexual violence in conflict. This is not solely an issue affecting women. 
Sadly, men and boys are the victims of sexual crimes too. But the large majority of the victims of rape and sexual violence as a tactic of warfare are women and girls. And in many parts of the world, impunity for these terrible crimes is the norm rather than the exception. To give just one example in the, in the European region, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, up to 50,000 women were raped during the war in the 1990s. But only 30 people have so far been convicted of these crimes. The government believes that more can and should be done to put an end to this appalling situation. So the Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative aims to address the culture of impunity by increasing the number of perpetrators brought to justice, to strengthen international efforts and coordination, and to support states in building their own national capacity to prosecute acts of sexual violence committed in conflict. The initiative supports UN Security Council resolutions, which the UK was instrumental in bringing about, on women, peace and security, and the government's existing work, including the Building Stability Overseas Strategy. We're working closely with other countries, NGOs, UN agencies and experts to define how the UK and the international community can step up action on this agenda. It's a key focus of the UK's presidency of the G8 this year. The Foreign Secretary will be convening the G8 foreign ministers in April with the intention of securing a clear political statement of the G8's determination to make real, tangible progress on combating sexual violence in conflict. And we're also seeking a wider set of practical commitments to overcome the barriers to effective implementation of the existing international legal framework. And we'll seek G8 endorsement of a new, non-legally binding international protocol on the investigation and documentation of sexual violence in conflict. It will build on existing guidance and best practice and will help to improve the evidence base from which successful prosecutions can be achieved. And since May, we've used events and activities at the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council. We ran an expert-level conference in November. And we used the 16 days of activism against gender violence, the campaign which ended on International Human Rights Day last December, to build alliances and awareness and to gather input for our plans. We've provided £1 million to the Office of the UN Secretary-General's Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict, and another £1 million over two years to the International Criminal Court's Trust Fund for Victims. And we've recruited a 70-strong team of UK experts to deploy to conflict areas to help support local efforts to investigate allegations of sexual violence and gather evidence. The Foreign Secretary describes confronting the scourge of sexual violence in war as a generational challenge to shape our world for the better, and he is determined that we should match the courage of survivors in our resolve. Finally, the FCA runs the government's forced marriage unit, which reported this week on cases they have dealt with in the last year. The youngest victim they helped to rescue was under five, the oldest over 70. So there is a lot of work going on and a huge amount still to do to combat violence against women and girls in all its forms, wherever it occurs. The Istanbul Convention in and of itself cannot end impunity for violence against women and girls, even in Europe. But it is a landmark development that recognises the state's responsibility to prevent and protect women and girls from violence by state actors or private individuals. And we are working with the grain of history. For all the tragic and horrific stories we hear every day, there are beacons of light. It shouldn't have taken the brutal gang rape of a student on a bus in India to provoke the outrage of ordinary people in India. 
but it did, and it is hugely important that they are speaking out against impunity for violence against women and that the case wakens so much public interest around the world. Talking about the challenges, putting an end to the idea that violence against women can be swept under the carpet, that it's a private matter, is vital. And in Europe, we can be proud of the laws, policies and practices that stand of a model of what can be achieved when society agrees to take action. So the Istanbul Convention isn't the end of impunity for violence against women, but I think it signals the beginning of the end. Thank you. And now, oh, <laughs> Okay, so it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to be here. I think it is a very timely event um, because it's occurring at a very important juncture in our work on violence against women, both in the UK and, in fact, globally. And, of course, um, my fellow panelists have talked about the gang rape of the young woman in Delhi um, that sparked national and international outrage and protests. Um, she, the, the victim came to symbolize the endemic nature of gender-based violence against women, uh, gender-based violence experienced by women everywhere in their daily lives. And I think since then we have been witness to an unprecedented wave of mass mobilization of women against gender-based violence, both in India and, in fact, around the world. Um, and it's a heartening aspect of the events that took place that everywhere women are invoking their right to life, to liberty, and non-discrimination. And in the process, they're extending and redefining concepts of rights and justice uh, to make them more progressive and to make them more inclusive. I think above all what's heartening is that they're laying claim to international human rights legal standards and norms and set out in various declarations, conventions, and other instruments. But there is a paradox at play. And the paradox is at the same time that we're seeing such a reawakening um, and laying claim to human rights for women, we're also witness to an unprecedented attack on feminism and women's rights uh, globally. And there are, at this moment, very moment, negotiations taking place at domestic and international levels, including within international human rights institutions, which give cause for grave concern. There are countermeasures, for example, that are being proposed by religious right forces uh, in all religions, whose agenda is to invoke traditional values and morals to infringe upon human rights, guaranteed by international law. And there is considerable concern amongst women's groups that such forces are seeking to reopen negotiations on established international agreements on women's rights, which will undermine the very concept of universality and non-divisibility of human rights. And the fear for many of us is that in the current political climate, there is a real risk of capitulation to such forces. At the same time, it's been mentioned just now by my fellow panelists that we're looking at austerity measures enacted in the UK and elsewhere, which are already undermining government commitments 
established in international agreements to promote, prevent, protect, fulfill um, human rights and fundamental freedoms of women. And I think the situation is about to get a whole lot worse. Black and minority women in the UK are particularly in a precarious position, precisely because not only do we have to contend with a general backlash against gender equality but, and the economic climate of cutbacks, but linked to this, the rise of religious power that is gaining in confidence and monopolizing community resources which makes exit and protection from gender-based violence for many women difficult. In other words, the increasing but negative interface of religion with gender-based violence and human rights is having a profoundly negative impact on the realization of women's human rights. So I think we're facing some really tough challenge and sorry, we're really facing some tough and really challenging times. But the point that I need to emphasize from the outset is that in the present economic and socio-political climate, it is essential to remain vigilant to the threats to, women human rights, to, to women's human, human rights that we face from many directions, even as we celebrate the Istanbul Convention and its potential to help us safeguard and enhance women's rights. And if I have time, which I suspect I won't, I'll try and come back to these issues that I flagged up at the end. In the UK, um, turning my focus to the UK in particular, we've had a decade or more of quite impressive policies, laws and initiatives on violence against women. And this has included, finally, after years of hard campaigning, the recognition that specific forms of abuse, such as forced marriage, honor-based violence, ritual abuse, female genital mutilation, and other harmful practices are also human rights abuses. And I have to say that these developments haven't all gone uncontested. In fact, I think some of the initiatives and policies also pose some interesting feminist dilemmas. For example, the advantages and disadvantages of pro-arrest policing on domestic violence cases, or the criminalization of forced marriage, two examples that I can quote. But despite, quite often, impressive policies and law reforms, for those of us who work on violence against women, we've known that there's a gap between the rhetoric of zero tolerance and the reality, which also points to the continuing systemic failures of the state to protect prosecute and prevent violence against women. The crisis surrounding the protection of very young children in child abuse cases and of vulnerable young girls and boys in sexual abuse cases are just some examples of the crisis of protection that I think we're facing in the UK. And I think that there's a similar crisis that's been simmering for a while in relation to institutional responses to violence against women. And although there's been positive shift in the policing of domestic violence, which has closed the gap between rhetoric and reality, it is still unfinished business. And I now fear that actually we're going backwards in many respects, as different sets of policies and initiatives reflecting current political and social developments are creating contradictory trends that undermine the gains that we've made. 
Our casework at Southall Black Sisters highlights some ongoing failures in state protection against all forms of gender-based violence. In many ways, the Istanbul Convention is far-reaching and comprehensive for a number of reasons. It makes clear, for example, the gendered nature of violence against women, an insight that we're actually in danger of losing, (laughs) ironically, because of the success of gender gender mainstreaming within state institutions, and because the Istanbul Convention uh, establishes a clear and unequivocal principle of due diligence to which states must adhere. And I want to sort of look at that in relation to the failures that highlighted by the work of SBS and how the Istanbul Convention might help deal with some of these failures. But I just want to highlight the UK government's response to the Istanbul Convention at the time that it was drafted. And although we applaud the signing of the convention by the UK and would urge it not to delay in ratifying it, the government at the time of its drafting did raise key objections and made proposals which, amongst other things, sought to undermine the due diligence standard and the recognition of violence against women as a human rights violation. And had it succeeded, it would have seriously undermined the effectiveness and standards and norms that are set down in international law. And I raise this because I think it is instructive and revealing of the institutional mindset that we are confronted with on a daily basis, which contributes to the flourishing culture of impunity for violence against women. The recognition of gender-based violence as a violation of women's human rights and as a form of of, of discrimination against women is vital. Why? Because currently in the UK, in our experience, the police often implement domestic violence policies in a gender-neutral way, which means that when they are confronted with a domestic violence call-out, they often record it as a report Um, as a domestic dispute report. They often say they can't record domestic violence, particularly when cross-allegations of abuse have been made by the perpetrator. Either deliberately or through ignorance, the police sometimes fail to appreciate that domestic violence affects women disproportionately, which is why it is gender-based violence. They can't distinguish sometimes between victim and perpetrator. And I suspect that what they're really doing is ensuring that they record so-called violence against men, which we know occurs, but certainly not in the numbers that it is now being assumed in policy. It is generally, there is now an assumption that domestic violence affects men as much in the same way and as equally as it affects women. And, of course, this isn't just a problem with the police approach. It's a problem with all institutional approaches. Many other institutions are also making this mistake. And the consequences are far-reaching. Many local authorities, for example, are now insisting that domestic violence projects run for and by women must also cater for men and that they won't get funding unless they open their doors and deal with men. So leaving aside the need for safe spaces and other 
uh, important issues in terms of supporting women who face abuse. And funding for specialist projects are being cut back up and down the country, um, paradoxically in the name of equality. Another problem that we routinely encounter is police dismissal of domestic violence reports. Of course, the idea that it's not serious has always existed and continues to exist. But alarmingly, we also encounter the criminalization of women who report domestic violence, which means that the state response is taken into another dimension entirely. And this has actually happened in some of our cases where women have been arrested, cautioned, or prosecuted and made to stand trial, even though they are the victims of domestic violence. In one case, I'll just give one example. An Indian woman was cautioned and misinformed about her right to legal advice and representation um, when she reported domestic violence. The background to her case is that she was subject to repeated abuse. She didn't have secure immigration status, and so fearing homelessness and destitution, she resisted our husband and in-laws' attempts to throw her out. Um, in fact, her experiences are very common amongst women who don't have secure immigration status. She called the police, but on the say-so of her husband and in-laws, who argued that she assaulted them, she was arrested and made to spend a night at the police, in a police cell. And Police, mainly because the police couldn't find an interpreter for her. She didn't speak English and she didn't know why she was being kept in the police station. She was terrified. The next day an interpreter was found, but he advised her to admit to assaulting her husband and in-laws and to accept the police caution. He told her that the caution was not important and that it would mean that she could get out of the police station, something which understandably she wanted to do. She acted on that advice, but later that caution was used against her by the UKBA who tried to deport her by saying that she wasn't a victim of domestic violence because there was the evidence of the caution that she was the perpetrator. So, um, and in that kind of situation, victims of domestic violence where they don't have secure status are entitled to remain in the UK, but only if they can prove that they're a victim of domestic violence. So you can see how, in this case, um, that worked against her. And in another case, this, this time involving an African woman who's charged with GBH, grievous bodily harm, after she tried to defend herself from her husband's violence, he pinned her tightly, held her arms, and the only way she could fight back was she bit his lip and cut it slightly. When the police arrived, because he called the police, she was arrested and charged, but they failed to do anything about his assault on her or to investigate her history of domestic violence. And the whole thing went to trial. Fortunately for her, the jury believed her and acquitted her, but the whole process was really traumatizing for her. And she was actually relieved at the end because she also had insecure status and had it gone the other way, the trial she would have had a very different outcome in terms of her entitlement to stay in the UK. Now, there have been many other cases in a similar vein, and the continuing confusion at times willful failure and misconduct on the part of the police has led us to employ a series of strategies to force the issue of accountability, 
We have a policy of pursuing failures through the police complaint systems, but the professional standards departments in these police um, forces, when they investigate such complaints, almost always defend police action and uphold their version of events. However, in the more dramatic cases of police failure that have led to fatalities or what we call near-miss deaths, we have had to resort to legal action which invoke international human rights law and standards. And the Istanbul Convention places emphasis on states to exercise due diligence to prevent, investigate, punish and provide reparation for acts of violence against women. And we hope that that convention will help to strengthen our arguments, particularly in courts. The response of the police to the case of Banaz Mahmoud, in, which is one of our cases involving a young Kurdish Iraqi woman, is a case in point. So Banaz Mahmoud, as a married woman, was killed for seeking a divorce from a violent husband so that she could marry her boyfriend. Her family considered her boyfriend unsuitable because he was from a different ethnic and tribal background. She was raped, strangled, and buried in a suitcase by a group of men from her community at the instigation of her father and uncle. They were eventually convicted of her murder in 2007, and her case received high-profile media coverage as an honor killing, which is true. It's exactly what it was. But the real significance was not just that it was an honor killing, but the fact that prior to her murder, the police knew about the danger to her life but failed to act to protect her. Before her death, she and her boyfriend had been subject to a number of death threats and attempts to kill by her father. Um, but on one occasion, when her father tried to um, attempt to kill her, she managed to escape into the back garden and she tried to alert her neighbour and she was banging on the neighbor's door and broke the window accidentally. Receiving no response from the neighbor, she climbed over the garden fence and managed to escape and alerted the police, um, who took her to hospital because of her injuries as so she cut her hand when she tried to break the window of the neighbor's house. However, the police, when they arrived at the hospital to uh, talk to her, dismissed her allegations of um, the threat to kill and instead were thinking of investigating her for criminal damage. Um, she also, they also dismissed all her fears that she and her husband were going to be killed and did nothing. And of course, she was killed eventually. The legal, there's some legal action being brought by her sister on her behalf, and we're trying to help her sister. And there are two outstanding claims that are going on at the moment. The first concerns the failure of the police to record or investigate Benaz's allegations of violence and threats to her life in accordance with their own policies and in breach of Article 2, 3, 8 and 14 of the European Convention of Human Rights, covering the right to life, the right not to be subjected to inhuman and degrading treatment, the right to respect for private and family life and the right not to be discriminated in the enjoyment of substantial rights. But there is also another claim that is being brought this time against the Criminal Injuries and Compensation uh, Board because her sister is trying to challenge their decision not to give compensation because compensation policy is restricted only to spouses, parents and children's victims but doesn't include siblings. This is an important challenge actually because in honour-based violence cases 
Often young people are killed by their parents, and often the only supportive people are siblings who are in a position to make claims for compensation. I don't think we're going to win on that one, but anyway, let's see how that goes. The other case I want to talk about, if I have two minutes, minutes, oh my gosh, (laughs) is a case of Nusheen Amjad. She came over as a bride on a spousal visa. She married a Pakistani national. She was subject to considerable violence and abuse. She was vulnerable because of her newness to this country, because of her lack of English, her isolation, and her immigration status, all of which was exploited by her husband and in-laws. And each of these factors were officially identified as risk factors um, in, in respect of violence. But within weeks of arriving in the UK, she reported to her sister and her parents in Pakistan that she was suffering from abuse and she was being imprisoned in the family home. She tried to leave on three occasions, and on each occasion she was sent back. Within seven months of being in the UK, she was found set alight in her garden by her neighbours. And she was actually recovering from that. She suffered 60% burns, and she was recovering from it. And in hospital, when she was able to, the first thing she said was, do not allow my husband and my in-laws to visit me. I do not want them anywhere near me. For reasons best known to the hospital, they didn't act on that, and the husband and in-laws were given free access to her. Immediately, one of the visits to her by her husband and in-laws, she suffered catastrophic brain injury. And um, it was found that the ventilator that she was on was dislodged. Um, She's now cortically blind. She has minimal consciousness She needs 24-hour care, and her condition is lifelong. But you know what? In that state, in that condition, the state tried to deport her because she uh, she didn't have secure immigration status. That's one part of it, which we've actually won. Um, She's got um, secure status now. But there's another side to it. There has been no investigation into what happened to her, including in the hospital. Initially, the case was treated like an honour crime, but when she could no longer talk, the police investigation, superficial as it was, stopped altogether. And we questioned the police about their lack of inquiry last year, and we were told that she wasn't a victim of domestic violence and that her attempted suicide, if that's what it was, was a cry for attention, and that the real problem was her parents because they should have allowed her to return home and they didn't. And of course... We're now taking action for state failure to protect her and to adhere to international law, and particularly state failure to investigate and prevent acts of violence. We're approaching the case in two ways. We're helping her father challenge the UK state under Article 2, 3, and 14 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which raises claims based on investigative and protective obligations in those um, articles, And we're also arguing separately that even if this was a case of attempted suicide and not murder, which we're not sure because the matter was never investigated, there is insufficient legislation to deal with the situation. We argue that suicide should be considered in a similar vein to homicide where the aggravating feature is domestic or sexual violence. We want to see a new law on suicide aggravated by domestic violence. And I think this is pertinent in the context where the links between suicide and abuse, violence against women are well established, and where in particular 
the attempted and contemplated rates of suicide among South Asian women in particular are up to three times the national average. So in conclusion, the Istanbul Convention in both Benaz and Nusheen's case is vitally important because it endorses the view that gender-based violence triggers duties on the states, even where violence is perpetrated by non-state agents. It emphasizes the significance of the issue of violence against women and its relationship to human rights standards. But I think more needs to be done. Um, Despite reports and measures aimed at police accountability, we still, still seem to be so far off from accountability. And I don't think lessons are being learned. And I look forward to seeing how else we can use the Istanbul Convention creatively in terms of dealing with particularly issues of accountability, state accountability in in the prevention prosecution um, aspects. We have to continue to press for state accountability in various ways, and the Convention is an important tool to draw upon because it helps to reiterate the principle that violence against women is a form of gender discrimination in itself, and that the police and the authorities must be fit for purpose, and that a failure to exercise due diligence contributes to the culture of impunity for violence against women. But we also have to deal with the current climate where austerity measures and contradictory forces, including the rise of religious power, are undermining the very concepts of human rights that we seek to enhance. So there's a lot of challenges for us ahead, and I think that the, for me, the question is working hard, rem- working hard and remaining vigilant to make the convention work for us. And I think that involves a simultaneous use of multiple and legal and political strategies aimed at the state and community levels. Thank you to all three. I think we've had a very clear of the top-down of the convention, official language, and then the realities and the contradictions that we have um, between all of those. We've got about 20 minutes um, for questions, discussion. Um, There are microphones. What I'll do is take several at a time. Please, can you keep them short? Because we have got only a fairly brief time, and it would be um, nice to get as many people as possible to do so. Say who you are, and if your question is directed at a particular person, can you say so? Otherwise, uh, anybody in the panel can answer. So we have one person um, immediately. (coughs) I think I'm stopped. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm Armin Eishkanyan, lecturer at the LSE. My question, I guess, is to maybe Louise and... Pregna, it's about the UK and current contradictory policies. Um, because while I commend the UK government for signing the convention and for working hard at the international level, what we find in the UK <coughs> is patchy provision, fragmentation, which is exacerbated by the cuts. So while the national government is signing up to this human rights convention, how are these human rights commitments being transmitted and translated at the local level to local authorities? where implementation is most important. Because when you have localism and the removal of ring fence funding, it appears as if you have an exacerbation of that fragmentation that it was already there. 
essentially the contradiction between the top-down acceptance of the commitments and then the local authority cuts at the other end. Hilary? Hilary Fisher. Um, I was on the um, committee that drafted the convention, which is why I'm really pleased and delighted that this um, discussion is being had. But my issue is very much around this, that you, it, signing is one thing, but it's actually ratification that's going to make the difference as to whether or not this government is legally bound to put anything in place. And as already, has already been mentioned by one of the speakers, there was a very strong attempt to derail some of the very important parts of that convention um, before the um, convention came, in to, came in to, to be open for signing. And I can't see any real evidence that this government is going to go so far as ratifying it. And that's, I think, an absolutely really important issue. So I'd like the view of all of the panels about what we can do to actually make sure that Britain isn't the last uh, country to ratify it. And there was a comment um, by Louise de Souza about how the UK was very much supportive of, of uh, the convention and the ratification process. And I know from speaking from, for, from colleagues from other countries involved in this process, it's actually ratification by the UK would make a huge difference to the number of other countries that would come forward and sign it because they're looking for substantial countries like the UK to do that. And to be honest, it was very difficult for people to understand why the UK was so reluctant to come forward and support this, given what the UK has actually done over the last um, decade, which has been mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. Another one at this point? Hello, I'm Molly Sweeney. I'm a student here at LSE. Uh, thank you so much for the presentation. Ms. Moreno, you spoke about culture not being used as an excuse, and I completely stand behind you with that. But admittedly, there are cultures where violence against women is more accepted. And how, how do you implement a transition? Because obviously you can't just go in and state that it is now completely unacceptable. So how do you transition that? Welcome to the panel members. Um, my name is Nora. I'm a student in MSE, um, uh, MSC Politics and Communication at LSE, so my point of view is a little bit from the communication side. Um, as German, I'm a European citizen, and I think a problem of uh, Europe and probably also of the Council of Europe that people are sometimes thinking is kind of unapproachable. And probably one of the issues is also that communication is not, not flowing well enough. And especially with projects like that, um, with the Istanbul Convention, which are really important um, in terms of being communicated so that people can help facilitate it, that people know about it, um, I would be interested in what the plans are for campaigning, for kind of letting people know that it now exists and what they can do in order to enforce it, in order to support it. Which links, in a way, with the ratification question. Yeah, the sort of the notion of people knowing about it to make enough pressure to... Uh, have ratified by major countries. Who would like to kick off um, on the panel? Louise? First of all, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not qualified to comment on domestic implementation. Um, I don't have any responsibility for that, so I, um, I'm not ducking the question, but you won't get a sensible answer from me. Uh, Pragma, I think, sounds like she's much better qualified to talk about <laughs> it. Um, uh, is the UK really going to ratify it? I mean, Without getting into the ins and outs of why the UK took the position it did during the negotiation, one thing I do know um, is that uh, we 
this country is serious about the international commitments it takes on, um, and signature doesn't happen lightly. Signature happens because we've decided we can ratify. It doesn't necessarily mean that we can ratify. Now, um, there was, there's been a lot of consultation in government about the uh, measures, legislative and, and other measures that need to be put in place so that we can give effect when we ratify, proper effect. Um, but it is something that I think the UK does, uh, can, can take some pride in, that um, when we sign, when we ratify, we mean it and we are serious about pro meaningful implementation. Um, so uh, I can't tell you when, but I can tell you it will be ratified. The government's completely committed to that. Just, I would just add on to that as well, of course, that under UK law, ratification, in fact, of its own is not enough. It has to be incorporated and made effective within our legal system. And yes, that does require a considerable legislative um, exercise, but again, it's absolutely vital that it takes place. Uh, what we don't want is a ratification that can't then be used in the sorts of ways that you were talking about in real cases to bring um, before that. I shouldn't be talking. <laughs> Actually, can I just add one thing? In the, yeah. the, the point about the UK being influential in its ratification, you know, giving impetus, I, I don't disagree with that, um, but I, I challenge the notion that somehow other countries have got to wait for a lead from us. Uh, I do think that every country, as sovereign nations, members of the Council of Europe, can get on and do their own thing, can move towards signature and ratification off their own bat. I don't think that we have a responsibility to lead the way, although I accept that it helps when you have um, uh, the, the sort of weight of, of countries moving in that direction. Um, and it's great you think the UK is that influential, but I do think other countries also must take responsibility um, under the, for their own human rights obligations. Elder, yes. which would you like to respond to? Okay. A ratification. There are two approaches to ratifications. Um, there are countries who uh, jump into ratification without uh, uh, making the, the necessary amendments. Uh, so it is first you ratify and then you start your homework. And there are others who really have to go through all the measures and really want to make sure that once they ratify, everything is in line with the convention. So for those countries or where, for instance, because it can be the political reasons, because the agenda, because of the parliament is changing, so the processes are very different. But the good news is that we really see a significant number of countries um, coming to ratify really doing their homework. And even if the Istanbul Convention uh, had only that effect of engaging the country, making all the different changes in legislation, we would have achieved already something very important. But of course, the, the entry into force also uh, marks the, entry, the, the functioning of the monitoring mechanism, which is very important. And of course, um, uh, coming together under a convention is, uh, is also creating a, a, a space for countries to discuss how to, you know, to overcome difficulties, to cooperate. So it is much more than just an addition of countries. It's really a very important forum. So that's why we really want to, to push for as many ratifications as possible. Also, um, it is, uh, I mentioned that it's not meant for Europe only. Any uh, country can accede to the convention. And in fact, the convention is already being used to modify legislation in countries from other regions in the world. 
And this is really very, very good news. And uh, we, we are discussing, for instance, with Morocco, the, 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 the provisions in the convention. So hopefully now Morocco, who is, uh, which is looking at its legislation, will get some inspiration for the convention. Now, um, I have seen in the past, uh, I mentioned the anti-trafficking convention, and I see some kind of uh, parallelism with uh, what uh, happened uh, during the negotiation of the anti-trafficking convention. And I have to say that I always mention, you know, when we talk about civil society, how important civil society was in the United Kingdom to push for the ratification of the anti-trafficking convention. I have to say the Amnesty International was really splendid, splendid work in really um, making it known and uh, making sure that everybody understands the importance uh, of the convention. So I, just to respond to the issue on communication, of course, in the Council of Europe we are really extremely frustrated. Not because we are uh, sometimes uh, mixed with the European Union that people think that we are the European Union. You know? <laughs> they have the money, we just have the idea. <laughs> no, uh, but because um, we cover 47 member states, 800 million people, and I have to say we have three people in the team to work on violence against women. So you see that our frustration, of course, we see all the huge potential of this instrument, and we would like to invest a lot in communication. I have to say that this convention, by the way, is the result of a very big campaign that we you know, launched in the Council of Europe that run through all the member states, and which actually brought the ideas and the really call for um, let's make a legally binding instrument. So fully agree with the, with the issue of communication and uh, what we are trying is to you know, use multipliers. And of course the first multipliers are the governments, those who have negotiated the text and who should be really spreading the news, but civil society, local authorities, professional networks, the media, Academics. Academics. <laughs> Academics, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, maybe just this, uh, to answer the question of uh, culture and traditions, um, the convention is very clear about that as well. Uh, I think that there are two uh, fundamental issues. One is the law has to be clear. The law is there to, 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 you know, to send a very clear message. It's not acceptable. It's illegal. So no excuses. But it has to also be uh, accompanied, accompanied by awareness raising and education. So you have to reach out for the communities and explain them. And uh, I happened to, to have a very nice conversation with um, a leader of um, Maasai community in Kenya who was explaining us how uh, he has uh, gone through a kind of uh, training and uh, about uh, female genital mutilation. Uh, well, the whole thing that he started in the community discussing with the elderly, then with the women, and so on, and how the whole community decided to change, you know, uh, to other forms of passing uh, um, to the, uh, how, how you say, the, these rites of passages of... Right. Uh, right. Yeah? Right. Right. passage, yes. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and it is about that. It is, uh, it is also about uh, the law in itself uh, may, very often is not enough, but it has to be accompanied by uh, education, uh, awareness raising, working with the communities, involving and engaging. 
deal with that culture and tradition question. I think it's a really important one because it's the one that I was um, focused on in my presentation as well. Yes, the law needs to be clear, but I think what we're seeing, particularly in these times of austerity, is, um, at least in the UK, the government capitulating to a contradictory set of policies aimed at empowering faith-based groups and leaderships. And what, what's happening is that we're seeing um, demands for parallel legal systems certainly being uh, more and more entertained, I, sh I should put it perhaps in that way. Um, and, you know, it's been supported by legalist prominent figures in the judiciary, by the church and many others in this country, um, demands for Sharia laws, for example, to apply in relation to internal matters affecting minority communities. And what they're talking about effectively is family law issues uh, because it's certainly not, you know, um, uh, the trade-off isn't in terms of public law and, and security issues. It's to do with women and the family. And that's where we're seeing a settlement between states and minority leaderships. And those minority leaderships are dominated by very right-wing authoritarian fundamentalists, um, if not conservative um, uh, forces. So I think one has to be very careful, and I don't know to what extent the Istanbul Convention will help us deal with this, uh, because it's not just about justifying violence in the name of culture and tradition, but it's actually about how you resolve these issues. And that's where the real key battleground is going to be, particularly for some of us. Um, and um, we really need to um, think about that in relation to the fact that at the same time there is undermining of human rights principles, the principle of universality, the principle of indivisibility and all of that. Often we're accused that these are Western concepts because they are originated in the West, forgetting the fact that actually people have contributed to their growth and the evolution from around the world. Um, but anyway, so that, there's a real major struggle going on, and I do think the Istanbul Convention is important in that struggle because I think that what we need to, be see, what we need to see is women being empowered, women being infor uh, in, uh, informed about the Convention, about their human rights, so that they can invoke those. Um, and that brings me to that question about sort of the disconnect between what's happening at the international level in terms of commitment to these wonderful you know, um, um, ideas and what's going on at local authority and sort of at local level. And I think you're right. There's a whole series of uh, contradictory things going on at the local level. Commissioning is actually the commissioning of services, uh, marketization of services around uh, for vulnerable groups, including women, is really problematic because lots of very specialist women's groups are losing out funding um, in these commissioning processes. And it's not that, that they're losing out funding in terms of spaces where they can support and, um, and, and help empower women, but in the wider sense, what we're losing is the analysis that often goes with these projects, the feminist analysis that often underpins these projects are going, and you get, you know, these, what I 
said earlier, was this kind of gender-neutral policies coming into play, which actually deny um, gender, in, gender equality in lots of ways. We're also seeing a, you know, the, the legal aid bill that's going to be enforced from April, which is actually going to deny access to protection for many domestic violence victims. And ironic, we're in this ironic position, <laughs> ironical position where if you're a victim of domestic violence, you have to, you're going to have to prove that you're a victim of domestic violence in order to access legal aid in family and children matters. To prove domestic violence, you're going to have to meet a very high threshold either a conviction, criminal conviction, a court, uh, a court protection order, um, a caution, or some kind of report from social services. And we all know that many women don't report domestic violence. And actually they can't, and if they don't, but if they don't meet that threshold, they won't have the evidence, therefore they won't get legal aid. Ironically, it was exactly that position that migrant women with insecure status were in last year, and the, you know, in previous years, when um, they had to prove a similar kind of, uh, meet that similar threshold in relation to their entitlement to stay in, this, in the UK as victims of domestic violence. And we fought and fought and fought a campaign to say that that threshold was too high and that it defeated the purpose for which the domestic violence rule was introduced, which was to protect women, and therefore they needed to accept other forms of evidence to show that, you know, in terms of reports from refugees, other women's services and so on, to show that they're victims of domestic violence. We've won that for migrant women, and now we're in this position where if you have secure status, you, you're going to have to meet a very high threshold. So there's an interesting discrimination going the other way, which I think might be an interesting <laughs> a challenge, actually, on our hands. So I think that, you know, yes, there is a huge disconnect between those kind of aspirational... Uh, that rhetoric and what's going on at the local level. And finally, ratification. Why can't the UK be a leader? Why? Why, oh, why must the UK say, well, it's for other states to accept responsibility? On so many levels at the international, on the international stage, the UK struts about wanting to be a leader. I just don't get that. I... <laughs> I've just looked at my watch and it's already gone 8 o'clock, <laughs> so I'm afraid we're going to have to close. Sorry. Um, I think we could have all gone on a lot longer uh, talking about it. Before I finally thank the speakers, I've still got two further announcements. One is that the Centre for the Study of Human Rights is, uh, announces that it's putting on a two-day course exploring the international human rights law framework for guaranteeing women's human rights on the 13th and 14th of June. Information about this will go up on the website tomorrow, the LSC Human Rights um, website tomorrow. And if people in any case would like to keep um, informed of what the centre is doing, to receive emails, etc., again, the Twitter, whatever it is, hashtag, there, there it is, hashtag. And finally, please join us for a drink outside. Uh, to celebrate, and I know we've heard an awful lot that we don't want to celebrate, but let's at least celebrate being women. And thank our speakers again very much indeed. <laughs>